Well, as we draw our series on the sanctity of life here to a close, I think there's no better way for us to end than to challenge us all, including me, about how we should respond if we have determined in our hearts that life in the womb is worthy to be valued as fellow human beings wonderfully created by God. And if you believe that, and I hope you do, then that means that you and I and all of us who hold to that believe in the pro-life worldview. But as we've seen before, worldviews are only as strong as our actual convictions, right? Convictions that lead to action. Because if we say that we believe in something like human dignity, for instance, but then when push comes to shove, we live and act and do things that are contradictory to our claims, then do we actually believe what we say? Do we? Certainly not. I don't think that we do, if that's our situation. So to be consistently pro-life, we must act like it. Individually and also as a church. Here's my question for you. Are we as Christians going to actually serve as salt and light in this fallen world that we live in? Or are we just going to sit on the sidelines while children are murdered and mothers and fathers are duped into believing the pro-choice worldview brought to us all by the culture of death? And what is our, what is your actual view of human life, of babies, of children? What do you think in your heart of hearts? I remember listening to a sermon in 2009 when I was in seminary by my pastor, Ryan Fullerton, at Emanuel Baptist Church. I remember him then challenging our congregation about how our view of children and family reveals where our hearts are really at when it comes to protecting the unborn and loving and promoting the flourishing of children and families. What's our real position is what he was asking us. In so many words, he asked, have you ever been sinfully angry with other people's children or your own children? And most of us all could relate to that pressing challenge. And Stacy and I, for that matter, would soon find out what the late nights and challenges that, that were ahead of us, because soon after this sermon, my first, our first daughter was born, and we'd see ourselves how hard parenting would be um, as she was born later that year. But most of the congregation, you see, followed along with the questioning of our pastor, realizing and admitting that we can all lose our patience at time because of the noise, the neediness, or the mischief that children can often get into. And that children can cause inconveniences for us at times and frustration and even angry responses for for the best of us. But then he flipped the script on us at that point, reminding us of the inner anger in the Sermon on the Mount, or as we saw in our series, the secret murder that Jesus taught in Matthew 5 And called us all to repent of the ways in which we have treated children like a nuisance rather than a blessing. 
and for the dismissive anger and impatience which is just so grievously sinful and murderous even in our hearts. And before we reach to cast a stone at others, we must look in the mirror and evaluate how biblical really our world and life view is when it comes to children. Jesus says in Luke 18, 16, he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus loved and lovingly and patiently spent time with children. Do you? Jesus was pro-life. Are you? His worldview actually affected how he lived in the day-to-day. Does yours, what does it look like? Are we encouraging life for our families and friends and local church and coworkers? Or do we think children are a distraction and a burden? I hope we're convinced, even through this series, even more to align our worldview to value children and not just take a pro-life view that says, in our minds we believe these things to be true alone, but that we would positively show our love and value of how we think about and treat children and families. And that what we desire as Christians to be pro-life plays out in the day-to-day of our actual lives. And I want us to think today how that actually looks practically. This is the point of our sermon today, and this leads us to our first point and number one, we need to be defenders of humanity. Look with me in your Bibles at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. It says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't know about you, church, but I could be selfish at times. But when I come to realize it, in time, I'll open my eyes and commit to change and repent of my selfish actions or intent. Jesus, on the other hand, you see, Jesus was never selfish. He was always looking to the interests of others. And if we are going to be pro-life and pro-children and pro-biblical justice, like our Lord and Savior, we're going to have to learn a thing or two from him. Or 10,000 things from him, right? We need that model for us. Because we cannot be pro-life and only care about our own little corner of the world. Or our own personal family alone. Or our own needs that we have. Rather, we have to have a kind of Christ-like selflessness looking to the interests of others over even our own comfort and ease as Philippians 2 just reminded us. And since we live in a culture that has been so directed down the one-way street towards death, one way, no other way, our culture is pushing. We must swim against the stream and raging current that we saw from Philip Jensen last week. And if we're going to do that, we have to come to grips with what has actually happened over the last 50 years 
and start acting like we care about the horror of the wholesale murdering and taking of innocent lives in the holocaust of abortion. Does that move you? We can't just look away at what makes us uncomfortable and change the subject and seek to just keep the peace because so many people just happen to be swimming down that same direction of the current and it's just easier to stay quiet and not oppose them and not say anything. It is. We can't do that. Now, I decided in this series not to show any videos or portions of the horrific documentaries that I myself have watched in the past month and a half. But I could have. And you would have seen the horror of what so many people just call a simple, easy, outpatient surgery to remove a clump of cells. That is not how it is. Families are devastated. Women are devastated. It's a horrific thing. But just as an anti-Nazi movement began to pick up steam, when people actually saw images of the emaciated bodies in the death camps, we must face the reality and be honest about what abortion is in our own hearts and minds. Or we're just going to continue on in our apathetic ways, ignoring and abandoning the unborn. May it never be. And remember... As we've been seeing, abortion is the tearing apart limb by limb of living human beings in the womb. Or the killing of of all these different atrocious ways in the womb, living. That is what it is. It's hard to hear. It's uncomfortable to hear. But it's truth. Don't grow apathetic to it. We as Christians, alongside other pro-life opponents, and proponents, I mean, Because I mentioned before, there are even many non-Christian pro-life advocates as well. Even atheists and agnostics who don't even believe in God or submit to the authority of the Bible. Some of them are pro-life. Because they follow the science and the embryology and have come to the conclusion that this is a human life issue. And a major crisis in our day. So whether we look at the Bible as... Christians, or also look at science and logic and morality of it all, um, as non-Christians do, as well as Christians, because believers, of course, are not against science or logic, but if after examining the issues, we come out on the side of the pro-life position, regardless of our other convictions, then we must all together defend the vulnerable and defenseless. Listen, If you saw one of my small children walking out of the church building and onto West Richardson Street right there, I hope that you would have the inclination to shout out to them and get Stacy and I to kind of wrangle them in. Now, it's not a busy street. We all know that. But let's just say you happen to see a large combine or tractor or car coming down the street, and maybe you notice that the driver isn't Stopping because they just don't happen to see my little child taken off into the street. Maybe the driver's distracted and you can see it. I'd hope that your sense of urgency to protect their lives 
would increase and you would do something about it and scream a little louder or even run and sweep them up before they were hit and killed by that vehicle. I know I'd do it if I'd see your child walking in the street. You see, as pro-life Christians, we must not only believe that pre-born lives are valuable, but we must also seek to uphold that value in any way we possibly can. So being pro-life means promoting and protecting the value and dignity and blessing of the preborn, and really seeking and seeing and believing together that there is absolutely no reason ever for anyone to decide to abort their child, period, in sentence. As we all have the constitutional right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, including the unborn human lives. So let's respond like we actually believe that and really value life together. And let's act more like Jesus calling the children to himself and having a worldview that encourages life and sees it as a blessing and speaks up to defend it against the lies that are so commonly told in our world today. This is why I'm giving you all a copy of Randy Alcorn's book here to even further convince you of what's at stake and to also just give you even more fuel to be able to have a confident voice in the wilderness as you seek to swim against the stream of our culture. But not only do we need to defend the life of the preborn child, but also the lives of the expecting mothers and fathers as well. I mentioned to you the book before, What to Expect When You Are Expecting, (laughs) earlier in the series, and we're all familiar with that, right? You know, laying out all the stages of a preborn baby's development in the womb. I think someone needs to write another book titled What to Expect When You're Expecting and Then Have an Abortion. If we're going to be defenders of humanity, that means we must tell the truth about abortion and the damage that it causes to women and men alike. For God did not design a woman's body to get pregnant and then to unnaturally terminate babies in her womb in violent ways. Make no mistake, there are many consequences to abortion both physically and and mentally, and they cause much damage all over our nation. Damage like the isolating and excruciating pain during any of the forms of abortion, either in the presence of the doctor or at home alone in writhing pain, fear, and loneliness for those who take the abortion pill, which last I read now accounted for about 40% of the abortions. It's horrific. It's terrible. I've seen from documentaries showing the truth of it. These are not easy decisions. These are terrible decisions, life-altering decisions. And young women and older women and families, they're, they're, they're hurt by this. They're devastated by this. Or damage like what happens to future pregnancies sometimes, being at risk for preterm delivery and the potential of their now wanted baby 
now not even surviving potentially because of the changing of her biology and her part, body parts due to the invasive procedures the abortion doctor inflicted on her in her last abortion or increased chance of breast cancer, not to mention the numerous psychological and mental health problems due to the guilt and regret and memories of their child that is now gone. You cannot take the maternal instinct away and sweep it under the rug. The woman is a mom, and also the man really is a dad when his wife or girlfriend gets pregnant and conceives. He's a father and has a child. She's a mother and has a precious baby. And both, mom and dad, in that situation, will never be the same if they conspire together to proceed and take the life of their child. Oh, how we need to defend humanity by opposing abortion and also caring about the parents of these children sacrificed for the many excuses and things that people convince themselves into believing. This leads us now to our second point and number two, protectors against insanity. Look with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 24 and verse 11. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. We must not take our eye off the ball if we are going to be pro-life. And we cannot forget what is at stake here. We need to be rescuers, to use the language of Proverbs 24, rescuers of the innocent who are being slaughtered in the womb. That's the goal of the pro-life movement. And we do that by helping others become awakened to the horror, foolishness, and utter insanity of abortion. And in order to do that, we must speak up to the reality that abortion kills babies and leaves countless other lives damaged as well. Let's say something about it. Speak up in personal relationships and also using our right to vote. I know I mentioned last week that this isn't a political issue only or anything like that, but we must vote our consciences and seek just and sane laws that protect the innocent and punish the guilty as Romans 13 clearly communicates as the purpose of the state and government and things of that nature because too much is at stake and so many are involved in this mess. One book I read this past week pointed out the very simple fact that if there's been about 62 million legal abortions and babies aborted since Roe, then that means about 124 million parents have also been involved as well. Because it takes two parents for each child, of course, um, who have their baby aborted. And now I know there's certainly repeat offenders or instances of twins or triplets or even more being aborted. So these numbers aren't exact, but if we're talking about a little less than 20% of Americans who are not here because of the 62 million humans who were terminated before we saw, before they even saw the light of day in the last 50 years as we saw last week and we looked at that, then we can add both of the parents who chose abortion as well to the equation of direct complicity. And now we have close to 40 percent or more like around 38% of the living population today 
potentially a route about directly involved in the ending of their preborn children's lives. That's 124 million out of the 330 million approximately Americans that are alive today, about 38% directly involved in those ways. Too much is at stake. Too many people are involved. And where there's a decision by the mom and dad of the child to abort, there's also usually many more who played a part in that abortion as well. As sometimes the parents strongly encourage abortion or even demand it, or neighbors and coworkers or friends or other relatives or even professing Christians at churches. Not to mention the politicians, the abortion doctors, the nurses, the hospital staff, those who create the pills and the, and the, the, the different equipment or the Planned Parenthood so-called abortion counselors. It's just staggering to think about all who are involved in this culture of death. If we just let it sink in, and I think it's safe to say that with the web of complicity that well over 50% of our current American population is implicated in this insanity of abortion in one way or another. So we can't not sit idly by and let this continue, but we must do something and seek to change minds on this issue. We must protect against this insanity because it's a powerful stream. That means for some pro-lifers, they are going to the abortion clinics and peacefully trying to engage both the workers and patients from making the life-altering tragic mistake, tragic decision of abortion. And do you know that some babies and mothers and fathers and even abortion workers, like we saw in our first week in the story of Abby Johnson, as you can see in the movie Unplanned, We see even abortion counselors and workers are even turned from this culture of death as well and saved out of that. The the women who are about to abort their children sometimes decide not to and to have their child. And praise God for the situations that we see that, but we wish there were more. And it's sad that there are so many going through with this terrible decision. Others, you see, will work at local pregnancy centers and to help provide a better solution to the abortion like Life Options Green Hills in Trenton. And there's some literature in the back by the books. They're doing great work to help protect against the insanity of abortion themselves and to provide love and care and resources to needy women going through unwanted pregnancies. Others will take up the great cause of foster care and adoption and to love and receive orphans as the scriptures command and even others will go into politics and write bills and and debate the issues to lead change and still many others will use their christian influence to make an impact on their families and churches and friends and neighbors and co-workers this includes everyone hopefully that are believers here in this room we must use our influence to intervene and help them avoid The pro-choice lies that they've believed. Lies like life would be better without their child. Or lies like challenges economically somehow justify murder. Make no mistake about it. This is a life-altering decision that can and should be warned against. Or else there will be years and years of regret and sadness and a dead child. As one pro-lifer put it, you cannot unbecome a mother or father. 
Abortion only makes you a mother or father of a dead child that you yourself murdered. So I want to briefly share with you the well-known sled argument that you can use to try to persuade and show the foolishness of abortion to others, to help open other people's eyes to what they are about to do. And this is an acronym used by many in the pro-life movement to answer common misconceptions people have about abortion. So SLED stands for S, size, L, level of development, E, environment, and D, degree of dependency. Scott Klusendorf, in his excellent book, The Case for Life, helpfully argued that we should simplify the question to this. This is the question of abortion, church. Is the unborn a member of the human family? If so, killing him or her to benefit others is a serious moral wrong. Conversely, he said, if the unborn is not human, elective abortion requires no more justification than having a tooth pulled. But as we've seen from Psalm 139, David was knit and known by God in his mother's womb. David was David before his birth. It's clear that the preborn baby is a human being. So I agree with Scott Klusendorf, who concluded as a pro life advocate, he says, philosophically, there is no morally significant difference between the embryo you once were, and the adult you are now today. Do do you believe that? If so, defend it. Defend it against the moral insanity of our day that has been gulped down like Kool-Aid. The moral insanity of the so-called woman's right to choose and right to kill her pre-born babies. Insanity that says that the embryo or fetus does not have personhood and value. Back to the sled argument quickly. If someone has drank the pro-choice Kool-Aid, seek to convince them using this acronym SLED, starting with S. The size obviously does not make someone more or less human, right? That's clear. As one author put it, a four-year-old is smaller than a 14-year-old. Can we kill her because she's not as big as a teenager? No, of course not, because a human being's value is not based on their size. In the same way, the unborn is smaller than a four-year-old. If we can't kill the four-year-old because she's smaller, then, can we, then we can't either kill the unborn because she's small, smaller either. So clear. Or L, level of development. This is the same argumentation that follows, right? Just because an embryo or preborn baby isn't having a full-on conversation and functioning like you and me outside of the womb, like we function today. You realize that we were all once in that situation uh, of the pre-born as we were underdeveloped or developing as a human being in the womb. Does the underdeveloped life carry less value than the developed? (laughs) We all have different capacities and are more or less developed people and have higher or lower IQs and capacities and physical ability and strength and different things like that, is each human more or less valuable based on their mental or physical capacities? 
Again, if we think this way, we're going the way of Hitler and that mindset, and we're going to be deeming certain people unworthy of life based on some self-imposed, illogical, thoughtless, crazy criteria. Next, after we see the S and the L, next is the E, which stands for environment. Some say that since the unborn is not in our world yet and can't breathe air, for instance, like the rest of humanity, oxygen, right, that it's not valuable, that it's not a valuable person yet. But as Scott Klusendorf asked, does your value change when you cross the street or roll over in bed? If not, how can a journey of eight inches down the birth canal suddenly change the essential nature of the unborn from a non-human to a human? If the unborn are not already human, merely changing their location can't make them valuable. This is simple, right? It seems so clear and basic, but people believe and they will believe anything that they want fervently when they want to really just make their own choices and decisions that they've already made up in their mind. They'll hold to ludicrous arguments and excuses to appease their consciences. We live in a world that is so confused about everything and where one person who is a certain gender biologically can identify as another gender and it's so confused in our world, it's so chaotic in our world, and then we can also at the same time deny the human humanity and personhood of a newborn and, or of a preborn baby in the womb. Oh, we just make things up as we go in our culture. It's crazy. It's confusing. It's completely misleading. This leads us uh, to the D, which is the last letter in the acronym SLED, which stands for degree of dependency. Many pro-choice advocates claim that the preborn is not yet a person because it's fully dependent on its mother to live. You may have heard this one. But what is different, I ask, from the life in the womb to the life of the newborn or young toddler? The newborn is dependent outside of the womb just as it is dependent inside the womb. And if it's right to terminate someone due to dependency, then that's a slippery slope to infanticide as we've seen in euthanasia. I've had six children and all of them were dependent on others to live after they were born for their every want and need. They would die if we didn't care for them. Dependence does not make us less valuable. You see, God built in that wonderfully created dependence according to his plan and purposes. All these pro-choice arguments or personhood excuses, as I call it, are not persuasive in the least, and we need to point them out and try to open people's eyes to the insanity of these arguments before it's too late and decisions are made that are irreversible. This leads us to our last and final point. We saw that we need to be defenders of humanity and protectors against insanity. Lastly, we need to see in number three, We need to be helpers in the midst of tragedy. Look with me in your Bibles to Psalm 82 and verse 4. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now, if you've come this far in our series and are not yet moved to help the vulnerable, preborn human life from the permanent destruction and murderous death of the abortionist and those who hire him or her, then maybe we continue on a bit and think through the utterly tragic 
an unthinkable narrative that plays out over and over again in the lives of moms and dads of aborted children. As well as the families, friends, and churches involved in abortion. Now, you may have been taken back a little bit about what I just said and thinking, did I just hear our pastor correctly? Families and churches in a decision to abort? What is that about? You heard me correctly. I've watched both pro-life and pro-choice documentaries and read personal testimonies and books and websites that all indicate that in many instances, it takes a village, not just to raise a child as the saying goes, but it also takes a village to abort a child as well. Husbands or boyfriends seeking to persuade their partner into an abortion. Parents, like we saw before, strongly pressuring their daughters to make an appointment with planned parenthood to terminate their baby. Parents, friends getting annoyed and saying, just abort it already. It's your only choice here. It's your only out, they say. Or pastors even giving spiritualized counsel for women to abort their child. I've seen that perpetuated too in our day and age. Usually the story goes down and the situation goes down as a young woman and man coming to their parents or pastor or friends to almost get the go-ahead and okay from them to have an abortion. And many of those people in their lives will give them that go-ahead. Terrible. And even some pastors are even caught up in this pro-choice worldview of our day. Commending abortion. And some in this category will even try to persuade a woman who wants to keep and deliver and love her newborn baby, even in a hard situation, they would encourage to rather abort instead. They'll say, it's just a sum clump of cells. They will give many different insane arguments that we've looked at today and even before in our series to try to coerce, pressure, and even manipulate her into murdering her child. And I agree with my pastor through seminary that I mentioned before, as he said in that same sermon in 2009, which I went back and listened to. He exclaimed, he says, you want to end abortion? He said, reform churches. Then he continued, you want to murder people? Then get a pulpit and don't preach the gospel. And he closed with this powerful thought, Woe to the pastors who withhold God's truth. We need to be a church with a biblical worldview that leads to biblical action. We must be a village that helps raise and promote the blessing of children and family, not to tear them apart. This includes helping those who've made the sad and tragic decision to abort. There's gospel help and hope and grace and mercy for them as well. What kind of a church are we? What kind of a person are we? What are we putting forward? What are we building here? I read books talking about pregnancy centers and other pro-life organization, teaching about relationship skills and parenting and responsibility. And all that is really, really good. And I commend them all for their great work. And the local pregnancy center right here in Trenton does so much of that great work. But shouldn't we, as a church, 
certainly be also regularly, intentionally discipling, which is one of the key commitments in our church, discipling others in our church and around about marriage relationships and parenting and responsibility? Isn't that what we should be doing here as a church for people in those situations as well, for all of us? Challenging and holding up expectations that men should act like men, as the scriptures say, or man up, as another phrase puts it, and take responsibility for their lives and families and not neglect them or discard them. Let us be a place does that does this very thing as well, discipling young people, evangelizing, helping young and old about how to take responsibility in this world. And as I mentioned last week, so many women are seeking abortions because of terrible real-life situations that they're in. I was heartbroken to watch pro-choice documentaries that was trying to validate reasons to abort and sharing stories of abortion. And this poor lady and one of them had two children already with a husband who had just recently cheated on her. And he was barely one foot in and one foot out of a failing relationship. And he was in this video too being interviewed and he just sat there saying nothing about his wife's concerns. What a coward. She said in this documentary and I quote, where is the father most of the time? Goofing around and fooling around with another woman. Where is the woman at? She is the sole caretaker of this child 24 hours a day. I'm there taking care of them in 24-hour feedings. It's my responsibility. And like I said, this time I can't do it. I have a nine-month-old at home, and I don't want two in diapers. And as a father of our two oldest that were in diapers, it just struck me about how terrible this whole situation is. She goes on and says, and too much is on me right now. We are having marital problems, and he just left me in September, and it's hard. We're just trying to get our lives together right now. Now, none of that, of course, justifies abortion. But doesn't it reveal how worthless some men are and how guilty they are, just as guilty for this decision to abortion? Like Adam failing to protect his wife from the serpent, failing to love and lead. Now this young woman, she goes on to share the sentiment that if things were just a little more stable and more stable with her husband, she wouldn't be having this abortion. And sadly, I heard that same story repeated over and over again in different contexts, but in similar ways, and it's just devastating. I've been moved by it. It's almost like you want to just jump through the screen, screen and show them that there's another way. But they feel trapped. In fact, the excellent book titled Choose Life, Answering Key Claims of Abortion Defenders with Compassion that just recently came out this past May um, that had many different contributing authors. All, many of them were saying the same thing in several chapters of that book. And these pro-life advocates and experts continue to come back to the same theme of fear as the main reason so many women choose to abort their baby. Now, some women, like I mentioned last week in Abortion Worldviews on Pro-Choice, some women shout their abortion 
and are saying they're proud of it and they're so excited about it. But that is not the majority of it. And deep down, deep inside, I know that women even in that situation are damaged and hurt in so many ways. But this theme of fear just kept coming back up. Fear of financial instability, fear of health complications of their child, fear of what others might think and say, fear of how new baby will impact their careers, fear of how a child might ruin their educational plans, or even fear of abuse that they're in within their relationship. It's unthinkable things that some women go through, tragic things. And one of the most common fears and issues was the fear associated with the instability in the relationship they had with the dad of the child that they were about to abort together. Church, these are real fears. These are real people. These are real problems. We need to be a church that cares well for women and men facing unwanted and unplanned pregnancies and help to reach through the screen of the documentary, so to speak, reach out into their stories and let them know that they are not alone and that there are answers and support and help and that their little preborn baby has the right to live and is worth allowing to live its life no matter the difficulties and pressures that they're currently facing right now. But they need this support system. Reading all about the pregnancy centers that outnumber abortion clinics now, four to one nationwide. And that's right now just numbers even prior to the Dobbs decision. And a whopping 114 to zero here in Missouri. Oh, Let's make that number 10 to 1 nationwide and let's support it church by church, the work that is going on it so that they can provide the education and community and even the true counseling related to their child opposed to the demonic counseling that is going on over at the abortion clinics. Counseling that upholds life, not death. I want our church to be a place that encourages pregnancy centers and even provides more community right here in the support of our church family to hurting women with unplanned pregnancies as well. On that note, as it relates to our church and caring, let's close here with a hypothetical but yet really common situation that many churches go through. Say a woman who is associated with our church, maybe even a church member, got pregnant with an unplanned and unexpected baby. How would we respond? Would we put our noses up to her? Or would we encourage an abortion as some churches even do? Or would we tell her that she's a failure and that she's not welcome here like many other churches do as well? I heard stories over and over again. The common theme was the churches didn't care and support. They shut the door on women in situations like that. What would we do? Consider the church that I was a member at in Louisville, Kentucky during seminary that I mentioned before. There was a young lady who got pregnant just like the situation I mentioned. She was not married. This was, of course, an unplanned pregnancy. 
She let the pastors know how sad she was about the whole situation. And as a believer, she was repentant of the sexual immorality that led to her pregnancy. But she was also a Christian and thankfully was not swept up by the culture of death to lead her to the pressure of having an abortion. Thankfully, terminating her baby was out of the picture for her. Praise God for that. And as a believer, during a members meeting, remember it vividly, she shared with the congregation who would soon find out by the clear evidence of a growing baby in her belly, of course. And she shared how she had repented before the Lord and she even expressed remorse to her church family. And this was all, of course, led by the pastors of the church helping her along in that situation. And of course, she was doing this uh, willingly, and she wanted to share and seek the support and, and love of a congregation. And we as a congregation rejoiced with her at the gift of this little unplanned baby blessing who was along, coming along the way soon. The church then threw her a baby shower. The pastor spent some good time counseling and helping her with all the things that she was now going through alone. She continued moving forward, not only with the support from the local pregnancy center, but also from the support of fellow believers in her local church. People cared. People knew where people were there. Meals were there for her when she was recovering. Continued gifts and babysitting offers and help from those who loved her and wanted to care well for her in this very precious child she had in this very tragic and difficult situation that she was in. Listen, if we're going to be consistently pro-life as a church, we must seek to support and encourage the lives of all hurting women and the children that they bear. They're valuable. And also seek to help men and others involved repent as well for their sinful neglect. Help the men and women both repent and their selfish ways that they're caught up into. Challenging them to take responsibility to grow up and to care for their children and the mother of their children. This should be happening in churches throughout the world. We should create a culture of mercy and grace and help and support and love and a willingness even to be inconvenienced for the sake of others. And to get up off the bench and get into the game and to actually do something for someone. To speak for the unborn, as one great ministry calls it. And also to speak for those who are involved in the suffering and even the perpetuation of of abortion, speaking up for the help of the hurting and used and abused, and also speaking up to correct those perpetuating evil by the deception and the manipulation that they are doing. Because those with a truly pro-life worldview, which I hope we all are as believers, it's the only real position, only legitimate position for Christians to hold. We must all be defenders of humanity Protectors against insanity and helpers in the midst of tragedy. Pray with me. Father, we cry out to you for those many women who are hurting today and many men who are hurting today because of their terrible decision to abort their precious child. We pray that you would give them comfort. Even if they're here in this room, would you comfort them 
Would you encourage them? Would you lift them up? Would you point them to the grace of the gospel? Would you show them that they were clean in the blood of Jesus if they trust in Jesus for forgiveness? That Jesus frees and forgives. Oh, Lord, that he frees and forgives even from this terrible, disastrous decision of abortion. Would you help every one of us in this room to be consistently and truly biblical and pro-life? Help us to make an impact. Help us to let these truths change the way that we live and think and act. And that you would create a culture here, a worldview here at First Baptist Church of Gallatin that would be a place for the hurting, that would be family for those who don't have families, that would love People that come through this door, no matter what situation that they find themselves in, Lord, move in these ways, in mighty ways. We trust that you can do this, and we say this in Christ's name. Amen.